We are finishing up our series in the Old Testament book of Malachi this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there to Malachi chapter 4. If you need a Bible, they're under the chairs in front of you. I want to encourage you. You're best helped by having a Bible open as we teach through this. And you're most helped by having that be the Bible that you read through throughout the week. As you bring that with you and then you're looking at the Bible and getting familiar with it and the Bible that you open in your own homes. And so I encourage you, if you have a Bible that you're reading at home, bring it with you on Sundays and ready to open it up and, and follow along. I'll read here in Malachi chapter 4 verses 1 to 6 and then we'll do a bit of an introduction. Malachi 4 starting in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked. For they will be ash under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so they will not come to smite the land with a curse. In 1939, Hitler began a construction project through the parts of Europe that he was controlling there. It was a trans-European corridor, kind of like our freeway system, that would stretch through that part of Europe. It was a, meant to be a modern highway infrastructure. And in that project, many times they, they went and they built the bridges ahead of the highway, because that's what the crews were ready to do. And so they began the construction of these bridges with the idea that the highways would then connect to them. Well, uh, as you can imagine, that came to a halt when World War II really began. And so all that construction stopped. And by the end of World War II, uh, thankfully, his administration was no longer in power. And they did not complete that project. And so to this day, there's many parts of that that are left there abandoned now for 80 years. Uh, some of those bridges were there with no roads to them. Some of the bridges were partially completed, but not finished. One, uh, this one's in Czechoslovakia or Czech Republic. This bridge expands out most of the way across uh, what's a reservoir and then stopped. And you can see there's nothing leading up to it and there's nothing connecting on the other side. It's this bridge that's partially completed and hanging out there. Uh, in fact, you could go there now, you can visit it. There's signs all over that say don't visit it, but, but Google visited it um, if you went online. You can actually, on Google Maps, you can like scroll around, even while there's signs saying off limits. Um, the Old Testament, in some ways, ends like this partially constructed bridge. It's stretching out from the Old Testament, awaiting completion in the New Testament. And it stretched out there for 400 years, hanging, waiting until the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Christ in the New Testament. And if you are familiar with the Old Testament storyline, you'll see that as Malachi ends, the last verses, the last chapter, the last book of the Old Testament, it, it is built on all this storyline to that point, and then it ends with this bridge waiting, stretching out. And you won't be surprised by what you'll see here if 
if you're familiar with that storyline. If you think of the brief storyline in the Old Testament up to this point being Adam and Eve created in the garden and yet they sin. The consequences of sin comes in. God floods the world. After that, though, there's people that he raises up. Abraham, in particular, and then his children, Isaac and Jacob. And from them, he forms this nation of Israel that dominates the storyline of the Bible after that. And this people Israel, they go into captivity in Egypt, and then they're brought out, and they're given the law, and the law with Moses. And it both tells them what to do, but also, and very critically, tells them what to do when they fall short, because they will fall short. And he says, when you do, there's a sacrificial system that will temporarily cover your sins, but all waiting for a final fulfillment to come. That's part of that bridge extended out, but waiting completion. Well, the people do fail over and over and over again. And God takes them away into exile, into captivity. And then they come back. And from a human perspective, you might be thinking, that's what will finally get their attention. They were taken away in discipline. They come back. Now they will finally get their act together. And they do not. And that's what we've seen in Malachi. It's these people brought back into the land. And yet they're struggling and failing in all the same ways they were before. God is one more time calling them to turn, to turn back, and yet looking ahead to the way that th- this whole storyline will be completed with the coming of Christ and the one who lived perfectly in a way that they never did, the way that, that Jesus is the sacrifice that they offered but was looking ahead to. He's the perfect sacrifice, but all of this is waiting and looking ahead like a bridge extending out, and that's really where Malachi 4 will end with some of these same themes, waiting completion. So we'll look at it really in two parts. The, the first part will be a description of the day of the Lord that will come. And he describes it as coming like a blazing furnace and like a healing sun. And that's in verses 1 to 3, but then it comes back up in verse 5 as well. I want to remind you, though, where we left off in chapter 3, because it leads directly into this. In chapter 3, there was a complaint of the people saying it doesn't seem to make a difference whether somebody follows God or not. The wicked, they appear to be blessed, and life appears to be easy. Uh, In fact, they're somewhat jealous of that group. And chapter 3 ends by saying, no, the Lord will distinguish. That's the word that's used. He will distinguish between those who fear him and those who do not. And now in chapter 4, it tells us how and when and what that will look like when the Lord distinguishes between these two groups, those that fear him and those that do not. And it describes it with this term of the day of the Lord. It comes up twice in verse 1. Put your eyes there in verse 1. Behold, the day is coming. And again, the day that is coming will set them ablaze. And then in verse 5, it comes back to it. It calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It's a day described 17 times in the Old Testament, four in the New, using that term, a time of Deliverance and judgment, and always those two things. One group he will come to deliver, to rescue, but another he will come to judge. The same event, but it will have different consequences, different experiences for these different groups, either of deliverance or of judgment. It's a prominent theme in the Old Testament. It's come up here in Malachi. It comes up in the book of Joel. It's actually one of the main themes of the book of Joel, five times just to look at a couple of them, so I want you to see this. Joel chapter 1, verse 15. Alas, for the day, 
Uh, the day of the Lord is near, meaning it could come. At any point it will come. We must be ready. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. That's that judgment language of this day. In chapter 2 of Joel, the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Echoes throughout the Old Testament waiting for this day, this event where God will deliver and God will judge. As we get to the New Testament, that theme continues on, not yet completed. In fact, in two places in the New Testament in particular, it's viewed as yet future, as something that we're still waiting for. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now we request you, brethren, that with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or letters from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Notice he links the day of the Lord with the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, it's the same event. And he says, don't, don't be deceived with some saying it's already happened. In fact, he goes on to say, let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come. Then he describes things that happen to have to, have to happen first. This apostasy and man of lawlessness. I'm not getting too caught up with that yet. I just want you to see that it's described as yet future. The Old Testament is looking ahead to it. That bridge is extending out. It picks up in the New Testament, but is still waiting. Still waiting for that completion of the day of the Lord. Second Peter describes it that way too, as yet future. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, meaning suddenly and unexpectedly, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, the earth with its works will be burned up. It's this language of judgment in somewhat cataclysmic ways. So that's what it's anticipating here. So back to Malachi 4. It says the day is coming, and notice how it will do these two things. It will judge and deliver. It says for one group it will be like a burning furnace. The arrogant and evildoer will be chaff, meaning the substance is easily burned up. But for you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. It, this heat is described as delivering and judging. Think about this. Is the sun, is it, is it something that is a, a blessing and a comfort and healing? Or is it something to be feared? Well, it kind of depends, right? If it's a rainy, drizzly day and you are soaked and then the sun comes up. You rejoice in it. I think of one river trip when I was in high school. It was a six-day trip through the Frank Church Wilderness in the middle of Idaho. It was in June, it was a, so it was an early trip, and it rained for two days straight. Uh, not like off and on, two days straight, and it was that drizzly, cold rain that, that everything was wet. You know, our clothes were wet, tent was wet, sleeping bags. We camp on uh, sandy beaches there, so everything's just wet sand. We're, we're soaked and uncomfortable. And then the third day, the sun came up. It was just glorious. But you've also maybe had the experience of hiking out like in a high desert around here in August. And it's 95 degrees and the sun is beating down. And you think, I just want the sun to go away. Right? It can be both. And here it's sort of described as both. For some, this coming will be a blazing furnace. That's the language of judgment. For another group, it will come with healing in its wings. It will bring rest and deliverance. And notice the difference between these two groups. One is described as the arrogant and evildoer, 
And the other group in verse 2 is described as those who fear my name. It's not, this is the group that sins and this is the group that never sins. No, there's an arrogant evildoer pursuing sin. But those who fear God's name doesn't mean they never sin. It means when they sin, they recognize it as against a holy God. And they turn to God in the means that they had at the time of they offer sacrifices and they confess and they're trusting in God and his holiness to forgive, waiting for a perfect sacrifice to come. They don't deny it, they don't downplay it, they don't ignore it, they bring it to God. That's part of fearing his name. And he says, for that group, it's like the sun of righteousness will rise when this is completed. One author describes this rising of the sun this way in four aspects, you can think of it. The sun, it brings warmth where there's cold growth where there's atrophy, light where there's darkness, security where there was danger. And it's describing this fulfillment that way with the sun bringing warmth and security and light and growth. And then the analogy changes. Look again at verse two. It goes from talking about sun to, it says, you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. If you have only ever seen full-grown cows this makes no sense. Because if you see a cow in the field, or if your only experience with cows is like the steak you buy at the store, this makes no sense, right? Because you see a cow in the field, and there's, I can't imagine, a least playful animal, right? They're just, like, they eat and they stand. But if you've been there in the spring, and you see baby calves out there, then you get this. Because in contrast to these rocks that are standing around, there's these cute little calves skipping around, dancing, leaping, and it's just a picture of joy. And that's what this is describing. It's using this picturesque image of a skipping calf to describe profound and lighthearted joy. And what this is saying is that when this is fulfilled, God who comes and he delivers his people, your experience then will be of lighthearted joy even if that is anything but what your life is like now. We more often feel like the old cow standing in the field, right? Life is hard, and we feel a heaviness, and maybe punctuated with moments of joy, and maybe you're going through a period where it feels like much more heaviness than joy. And yet, this describes a future that is your future. If you've trusted in Christ, if you're this, this one who fears the Lord, when you go to be with him or he comes, that will be marked by lighthearted joy. What an image. So he describes here first this day of the Lord coming to judge and to deliver, echoed throughout the Old Testament, still waiting, like this bridge extending out. And then the second half of it, he does two things there. He says to look back and then to look ahead. He urges them to look back and to look ahead. And these verses especially do sum up the Old Testament and show the way in which this bridge is extending out. He tells them to look back to the law of Moses, to verse 4. Remember, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances, that's making up this law, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Look back. If you've been with us in these eight weeks going through Malachi, you've seen over and over again this reference to 
to God's law. We've, in fact, we've quoted Deuteronomy many times because he's calling them back now a thousand years later from the giving of the law to, to follow this that God had laid out for them. In chapter 1, it had to do with their sacrifices that they were to offer as, a, as a, an expression of their guilt over sin and their trusting in his substitution. And they were to offer that as a recognition of the seriousness of that sin and the holiness of God, but they were defiling them. They weren't following the principles there. In chapter 2, it was about the priesthood and how the priests weren't carrying out those duties given to them in the law. In chapter 3, it had to do with tithing and requirements that they had there that they weren't following. Over and over again, he's been pointing them back to the law. And now, at the close of this book and the close of the Old Testament, he says, remember this law. Specifically, he says, uh, given to them at Horeb. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy, which is a book recounting the law, this is how it describes it. It says, remember, this is Deuteronomy 4.10, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, meaning this time when the Lord gives the law to Moses. When the Lord said to me, this is Moses speaking, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me. Remember that's, that's this description of the people of Malachi 4, that the coming of the Lord will come with deliverance. It's for those who fear him. He says, I'm giving them my law so they will learn to fear me. They'll know what is right and what's wrong and they'll know what to do when they do what's wrong. They bring these sacrifices. So that they may learn to, to, to fear me in all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. They should pass this on. Uh, likewise, Deuteronomy 5 links us to this incident at Horeb. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. So in Malachi 4, when he points back, he says, remember the law of Moses given to you at Horeb. This is what he's talking about. And they've violated it throughout. Even after being exiled, because they were not following God, brought back into the land, they are still not following it. So he says, remember. And then he looks ahead. What he looks ahead to is what he calls the coming of Elijah. Chapter 4, starting in verse 5. Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet. From looking back, remembering the law of Moses, he says, now look ahead. I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Who, who is this talking about? Who, who is the fulfillment of this? Is it like a, is it like a reincarnation? Is, is he going to come back? Did he never die? And is he going to just continue on now? What, what is this figure? How are we to understand it? That's the bridge extending out that is picked up in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, while John the Baptist is still in his mother's womb, this is what was said of him. It says, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as the forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. It's not Elijah, but it's in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, which is Malachi 4.6. And the disobedient to the attitudes of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this is fulfilled, at least in part, in John the Baptist, who's preparing people as a forerunner of Jesus. Jesus himself in Matthew 17 makes that connection. This is after, early in Matthew 17, what we call the transfiguration, where Elijah and Moses appear to Jesus and his disciples. And then after that, the disciples ask him. They say, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, the scribes say that because Malachi says it. The scribes were familiar with it. The scribes were the students of the, of the law. 
They said that, that Elijah must come first before the Messiah because Malachi did. And Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man, that is talking about himself, is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Notice it says, yes, they're right. Elijah must come first, and he already came, and he's still coming. How could that be? How could he say on one hand, Elijah already came, and it was John the Baptist, and they did to him whatever they wished, meaning they killed him. How could it say he already came, and he is coming, future tense? Let me ask you this. Did Jesus already come, or is Jesus still coming? Both. He came in his first coming, and he's coming again in his second coming. And in the same way, Elijah came in John. He was a fulfillment in the spirit and power of Elijah. But when Jesus comes again, there will be a forerunner before that. Which is why, I think, he says in Matthew 11, 13 and 14, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. That's this bridge extending out, waiting until John, that is John the Baptist, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. And if you are willing to accept it. This is Jesus here speaking. This could mean a couple things, if you are willing to accept it. It could just be like a, a figure of speech, a rhetorical device. Like if I introduced myself on a Sunday and said, hey, if you're new here, my name's Dan, and so on. Well, my name's Dan whether you're new or not, right? It's not like... My name's Dan, if you're new here. If you're my friend, you can call me like... No, it's just that we just talk like that sometimes. In the same way, it, it could be just a rhetorical device if you're willing to accept it, but he is, whether you accept it or not. Or it could be that he's saying, if you would accept John as the fulfillment of this, coming before the Messiah, meaning you also accept me as your Messiah then he will be the full fulfillment of this because you as a people will turn to me. But they rejected John and they rejected him. And so he will come again and there will be another Elijah-like figure before this second coming. And that would fit with Revelation 11 during what we call the tribulation period. There's these two witnesses that God raises up that call people to turn and they even have seemingly miraculous powers to stop the rain as a sign of God's power. Much like Elijah, God used him to stop the rain for a period. So it could be that that is the fulfillment of this. So John, at least as a partial fulfillment, and then likely one to come before Jesus' second coming. I want you to see, though, that it doesn't end just with that. We would maybe expect this. Up to this point, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you would expect law of Moses but also looking ahead to one to come. But verse 6 is somewhat surprising. It says, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to the fathers. The surprise is this turn to parenting. We've got Law of Moses, we get Elijah, Day of the Lord, and parenting. Why? I think it's because of this. The the home is just a microcosm of society. And what happens in the home is reflected in society. And true repentance happens in the home before it spills out anywhere else. And so it's what they call a, a synecdoche, meaning it's a small thing that stands in for the whole. And the whole 
is this turning in repentance. And where it's seen perhaps first and perhaps in a focused way is even in families. In turning. This, this language of restoring is a language of turning. Hearts of fathers turning to their children. Children turning to their fathers. And what does that mean? Well, think about what it would mean to turn away. The opposite of that is to be turned away. When fathers are turned away from their children, turned away in distraction, in ignoring their children, and caught up in hobbies and their phones and their work, and their attention is always elsewhere, or turned away in harshness and even abuse instead of a tender turning towards children. It says, no, this repentance will be marked by fathers turning, turning towards and children turning towards their fathers, not away in bitterness and rebellion, not away in personal and self-centered pursuits, but turning in this close restoration. Um, it's the signal, this is sign of this future repentance, but ought that not to mark us now? If that's going to be a mark that, that people are responding and turning, ought that not to mark us now in just such a practical way? of fathers and mothers, although fathers are specifically pointed here, of turning towards their children and children toward their parents. And that might be, for your situation, layered with complications, maybe of decades of abuse or neglect or withdrawal, and you're like, I I don't even know where to begin to untangle this complicated mess that is my family. I don't mean to oversimplify something that's complex, but the general idea here is of turning towards getting help to do that, turning as much as you can, knowing it involves another person as well. as just one mark that the Spirit is at work in people. It ends then by saying, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The Hebrew rabbis would actually go back and read verse 5 one more time when they read this, so they wouldn't end with that language of a curse. But the language here is what we would again come to expect because held out to the people was blessing and cursing. And if they turn, they will be blessed. If not, they will be cursed. And so this is one more time God saying if they turn, the land will not be cursed, but they will be blessed. In a premillennial understanding of the return of Christ, meaning Jesus returns before setting up his kingdom, then this makes sense. As the people turn and Jesus comes as kind of one event there and he sets up his kingdom and so the land is not cursed but is blessed. Well, how do we, how do we apply this? I'm gonna, give you, I'm gonna give you two ways as we think about how to apply this word given to the people of Israel in this unique situation in Malachi and yet echoed on and preserved for us. And I'm gonna give you two ways. First is view present pain in light of future promise. Present pain in light of future promise. They're going through difficulty. There's an oppressive regime controlling their land. They're unfaithful as a people, although some are remaining in, in a fear, fear of the Lord. And they're struggling, but God looks ahead to the future. I, I don't know what your life is like now, but you might be experiencing pain in all sorts of ways. It might be physical pain that is chronic and long-lived. It might be the pain of shattered and broken relationships financial distress, of just a weighty depression that doesn't seem to lift, on and on and on. And what this describes, though, is that your future 
If you've trusted in Christ, you're one who's feared the Lord. You see, you see your sin clearly. You see that Jesus is the substitute. You've trusted to him. You've turned to him. Then one day what will be fulfilled is verse 2. You will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You might feel like doing anything but skipping right now. You might even think, I could not skip if I wanted to. Again, it's a picture of lighthearted joy. When all this heaviness is replaced with joy in the presence of Christ. That is your future. Romans 8 says, present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. That is your future. And so present pain, look past it to this promise to come. And that comes for those who fear the Lord. That's this description of these people, not a perfect people, not a people who never sin, but a people who fear the Lord, meaning when they sin, they turn to the Lord. They confess it, they acknowledge it, they trust in his substitute, but that they want to obey him, they want to follow him, they want to see that reflected in their life, and when they fail, they trust, and they trust in Christ. And if that is you, this is your future. Let's pray.